Hello, this is Sarah. I just wanted to drop in at the top of the episode to acknowledge that this episode is certainly unique. I have not been this excited about a guest, maybe ever, (laughs) but that's because it is one of my oldest, nearest, dearest friends, my college roommate, Anne Conroy, who just came out with a major law review article that is just so timely regarding social media and censorship. And so we took a moment to speak with her. Uh, We did tape it from a glacial lake in the Olympic National Forest. So if the sound isn't perfect, that's why. But it was a really special experience. We were in the National Forest celebrating our other college roommate, our other old-time amazing friend who you'll hear from briefly, Kathleen Riley, because she is having a bebet. We had planned the trip long ago as like her last hurrah. It was, if I do say so myself, a religious experience. So I hope you can hear some of that zen in our voices. I hope you enjoy. Uh, This episode is particularly pertinent to the upcoming election. And more than anything, I hope you're registered to vote. I just want to remind you that we are sponsored by the Worcester Arts Council and proud of it. So enjoy the episode. I'm Molly O'Connor. And I'm Sarah Connell Sanders. And you're listening to Pop It. This is the podcast for popping questions, popping bottles, and pop culture. Today we are by the one and only Anne Conroy Esquire. Woohoo! Thanks for having <laughs> me. And what's your what's your middle name? Elizabeth. I see your Elizabeth. Was it Elizabeth? I was gonna guess that. Yeah, it's a with the e. Anne E. Conroy. That's such a name, right? Sizzle. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's like the Anne with an E. Oh, boy. The Anne with an E, I feel like, is really important because that's just like some Anne of Green Gables stuff right there. You got to have the E on it, you know? Yeah. It's more like gravitas. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Now, yes. aside from the fact that I've been really trying to convince Anne to have the winter of Worcester since she's working remotely. <laughs> Anne is a New York City resident. I am, yeah. And that's where you practice law. Right. So I practice law at a law firm in New York City, and I do mostly corporate law, which is good and uh, fun. But I wrote this article about the First Amendment because I thought it was interesting and decided I needed to say some things. Yeah, well, and it's, I like could not believe that you had written the article a while back, but it came out recently. It mentions the Black Lives Matter movement. It mentions COVID. Yeah. It mentions Trump's Twitter it's account. Appreciant. How mm-hmm. did you know? <laughs> well, I had yeah. to edit and say, okay, all this stuff is happening right now. I need to add a paragraph to acknowledge it. It's quite good. Okay. How do you decide what law journals mm-hmm. to apply to? What motivated mm. you right now to do it? Yeah. How do you even decide to like write a paper like that? I wrote it as part of a class. So my final semester of law school, I was in a First Amendment seminar and it was set up that each person in the class was assigned a topic and you had to present the paper and then turn it in, which I did. And I was on Law Review. I was editor-in-chief of my law school's Law Review. And I thought it'd be really cool to publish, you know, like I, I knew the process and I knew how to submit and thought, you know, it's why not? Like the worst that could happen is journals don't want to publish it. So, but every journal wanted to publish <laughs> it. Was it six of them? That's so accepted? cool. That's right. Yeah. So six accepted, um, which is pretty unusual because I'm wow. a practitioner, right? Like I practice the law. I'm not a professor and uh, I don't have right. 
resources as professors. So there's a whole <laughs> database where right, you- there's that level of like academia. Yeah, I just, I like blind, What it's like, what's the version of, it's not cold calling. You just blind email it in. I picked the highest rank one, which is maybe, you know, not that exciting of an answer to how I picked the journal. No, of course. <laughs> it, and it's a top 50, right? Mm-hmm. Is yeah. that right? It is. And yeah. It, um, it, it ended up in the George Mason Law Review, right? That's right. Yeah. So I had a very nice yeah. editor who he, I guess, George, and good for them. One of the criticisms of law reviews is that they're very stodgy and they are too theoretical and don't actually address the practical aspects of problems in the law that they just think like, what is the theory of the law? And so George Mason mm-hmm. has a whole section where they call it developments. And so that's where my piece was slotted in their development section, where they specifically target shorter articles that hit on cutting edge issues that are happening like in the moment. So that's where my offer was. And it also meant rather than a year of editing the article, I only had three months to edit it and get it ready to be published. So it was also accelerated, which was good. The premise is that the internet is maturing so quickly that it's impacting our first amendment values. Mm -hmm. Uh, But can you give us a little bit more background just in terms of, you know, the, the conclusions that you drew? Sure. So today in 2020, If you think about where the majority of your speech happens and where you express yourself and where you express dissatisfaction with your government or with your school system, or, you know, you really want to criticize something, you chances are you do it online on these social media platforms, which is just different from when a lot of the doctrine of First Amendment was being established when you would go out and protest or you would make leaflets and hand them out at a supermarket. Uh, And now that is all transitioned, not all, but a lot of it has transitioned online, which has provided a lot of access to speech and a lot of, it's increased the marketplace of ideas by tenfold is too small, which is great for a lot of reasons, but then it's also problematic because we don't have the same protections we do as when you want to go protest at City Hall, as when you want to form a certain group on Facebook and exchange ideas publicly assemble or whatever so as private companies Mm -hmm. in twitter they don't have to tell us how they're curating all their content right right? so like what's the worst that could happen so if you think about it we so the first amendment right applies only to government actors it says congress shall make no law and so that means you cannot the the government cannot say well you can protest but you can only protest if you uh agree with what you know, we want to say only if you uh, don't mention this, you can't, the government cannot do that because that's viewpoint discrimination. Facebook and Twitter, however, can do really whatever they want in terms of content moderation because they are private companies. They are not beholden to the first amendment. And so the problem is, do we really want two people having that much power over our important speech and what are our values? Right. Like Mark Zuckerberg and Jack. Right, totally. <laughs> Who Jack notoriously like will go eighteen hours at a time without consuming food or drink. Is this the man that we want to trust? Know that yeah. with this kind of thing. I think that um, this is to me a really, really important point that I think gets lost in the debate, especially about like cancel culture or just like the general. I would, I guess, like Trumpian viewpoint of what the first amendment means there seems to be a lot of confusion among i don't want to you know put anyone in a corner but like 
a lot of like right-wing commentary comes out saying, oh, that's a violation of their First Amendment rights. And then people point out, they say, well, no. Yeah. Because if it's a private corporation or private entity that's enforcing whatever is they consider censorship, it's not actually a First, First Amendment violation. Really? Because as you said, it's a government thing. Mm-hmm. So people seem to be confused about that. I think too, like, you know, this yeah. is a side. I think it's really interesting too, because the Trumpians also were like, private corporations should be free from regulation, but also my First Amendment right is so important. It's like, well, right. how, do you, so, how do you get there? So like someone gets fired from their job for mm-hmm. using, um, or ha- for having what you use in the paper as like the, the term, an abhorrent viewpoint, right? Like a societally mm-hmm. viewed abhorrent viewpoint. So say someone posts something like that, people find out where they work, yeah, their job is le- legally within their rights to say we're going to fire this person because we don't like what they. This doesn't align with our views. Totally, it is so fascinating though to watch those types of things unfold. Right, because of that like level of it's their First Amendment right to say something on Twitter, and it's like, well, is it? And <laughs> can you give me some examples of when <laughs> companies like Twitter and Facebook yeah. have felt compelled to censor somebody? Sure. I'll say first, like to Molly's point, again, I think that confusion arises because all of our speech is happening online. So it is, it's hard for me too, to separate, okay, this is where I say everything that, you know, I think about the government, or I, I think that I, I want to express myself right. so hard that I, I, I know rationally that I don't have the first amendment protection there, but it's also like, but shouldn't I, you know, there should be something. I think in terms of speech that Twitter and Facebook have, have censored or have taken down, there have been some really interesting high profile examples of this recently, like Donald Trump is tweeting out misinformation right. about voting. Um, and so it was this big brouhaha where there's now Twitter put up like a, there's a technical term for it, but you, they essentially block it and you can, you have to click to say, okay, I do want to see this or um, I, you know. I right. Do- it says like, this may not be accurate information. It's almost like a marker. That's what yeah. I've been noticing. I saw one on, Instagram the other day, like someone had posted, um, it was a reference to that statistic that said that like only a certain percentage of people who died of COVID only died of COVID. Right. Um, and I actually clicked to that and it had a similar marker underneath that said, this has been independently fact checked and it's not fact checked. So they didn't take the post down Mm -hmm. in this case, but underneath it, there was like a very clear, like this information is not correct. Right. Yeah. Uh, The president has had one removed right i think not removed because the because twitter says or just he is like, like the leader of our country there is value in people's right and knowing who's written yeah but also it's incorrect um, and dangerous it does say there was one oh you know what so he retweeted something that they like unretweeted from his page oh so they I didn't take that. off yes so they didn't take off a tweet that he had like written and posted himself but they did like they restricted that particular like action on his part, which is interesting. What happened with Donald Facebook Trump? Facebook deleted COVID misinformation. So Donald Trump Jr. was all was posting a lot about um the hydroxychloroquine mm-hmm. that oh. treatment that they say that is generally used for like chronic lupus issues and stuff like that. So he he got into a bit of trouble. He was posting specifically thing that the administ- the Trump administration in general has been 
pushing. Um, so yes, he got, his account was limited as a result of that, which I think meant that he had a short suspension, but also that, like Anne said, it had one of those markers on it that essentially was like, do you want to see what this says? Yeah. I'm trying to think of other- He's an idiot, so. That are less like, <laughs> less focused on Trump, because Trump has given a lot of- <laughs> Like, right, just those Interesting, thought scenarios for this. I will say that that one that I saw on Instagram in particular was interesting because it wasn't a person that it was someone who had like maybe like 9,000 followers, but it wasn't anyone whose name I knew or who's like who I had seen information before. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. If you think, I I feel like it was maybe three or four years ago, there was a (laughs) campaign's the wrong word, but a free the nipple hashtag, because that's another, like something that Instagram has decided they want to censor but yep. not men's right. torsos or nipples. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. So that's that's less extreme than voting misinformation, but unless less worrisome <laughs> for our First Amendment values, but still something that they, you know, Instagram decided they wanted to do and did. Now, how yeah. can the lack of non-disclosure agreements with these big tech companies yeah. impact the 2020 election? So mm. I guess non-disclosure meaning like they're not telling us what they're doing. I will say, I think both the big, huge Twitter and Facebook are trying really hard not to screw this up. Um, And so they are putting out a lot out on what they're doing, but there's a lot of mistrust, right? That we, we just have to take their word that this is what they're doing and they're, they're independently fact-checking and they're using their faith to go forward. I think the worst case scenario is people aren't going to trust anything they see online anymore, or they're going to say, well, Facebook let this stay up, but they didn't let this more fringe theory that I, you know, voter truly believe in. And so that's the problem, right? Right. Trust. It's a lack of transparency, I think. Yeah. But So a, a good example of that would be someone like Alex Jones, who, mm-hmm. you know, he's a big, loud, I don't know how to describe him. First tonight, our report on the incendiary radio host, Alex Jones. For years, Jones has been spreading conspiracy theories, claiming, for instance, that elements of the U.S. government allowed the 9-11 attacks to happen and that the horrific Sandy Hook massacre was a hoax. They're all pests. Yeah, he's a (laughs) pest, too. But, like, just super um, cult of personality type of guy. He had a really popular YouTube channel for years and years. But, like, his would be the types of ideas where, like, it's almost the inverse of what you were saying, where people are like, I many people will look at Facebook and say, I'm not going to trust anything from Facebook because of this or this. But then there are those folks who in that realm of fake news Mm -hmm. have trouble discerning, right? Like what is real and what is fake and who is a reliable source. And so Mm -hmm. Alex Jones was one of those people who they just took him off. Yeah. So that's like no platforming or deplatforming, which I Mm -hmm. think is interesting because this has happened to, again, it's like those abhorrent views. Mm-hmm. So like Milo, I don't know. Do you guys know Milo Yiannopoulos? Yeah, he was big. He was just like, rem- yeah. And he, so there's been some, not like official research, obviously, but like there's been a lot written about how he, him getting pulled, like just like pulled off of those spanned really mm-hmm. from, I believe it was like Facebook and Twitter. Mm-hmm. But now he's like, he's broke. He's in debt. He oh. He can't get, he can't. He can no longer really get those viewpoints out that he wants to spread. So people are saying, well, yeah, it works. This guy sucked. We didn't think that he should be able to say all this 
Um, Thank you. Like, so what here's what happens when you actually just take him off is that he goes away. Yeah. You know? And if you think like 50 years ago, he would have had to go through much more effort to get to spread his ideas to such a wide audience, mm -hmm. right? He would have had to, you know, a lot of the seminal First Amendment cases are about handing out leaflets about dodging the draft or the Hare Krishna's <laughs> handing out leaflets in an airport. And, you know, that takes so much more effort than posting something on Twitter or retweeting something on Twitter. Giveth and Zuckerberg taketh away. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the problem, right? These two men have just vast power over so much of society yep. speech. You had used the term Absolutely. Molly platforming, and it's something I had never heard before. Yes. Can you just explain what that means? Yeah, to deplatform someone is literally to just like remove whatever platform they're using, whether it's Twitter, Facebook. I guess you could like transfer it to real life, like Ed said, like taking them, say they wrote for like a paper newspaper, right? And it's just removing their ability to interact with the public using that channel. My, this guy, Milo, in particular, was just banned. Joining us now is Milo Yiannopoulos, technology editor with Breitbart.com. Thanks for having me. You've been permanently banned from Twitter. I have. You've been pretty mean through the years on Twitter. I've been pretty mean through the years on yes. Twitter, but I don't think that's the reason to excise somebody from the platform. Uh, you know, actually, plenty of people enjoy what I do. Over 380,000 of them, as you, as you say, enjoy what I do. And there's certainly no suggestion whatsoever that I was involved in any kind of racist or sexist harassment of Leslie Jones. What I did was dislike her movie and write a very critical review that she didn't like. After that, I teased her a little on Twitter. If a journalist can't tease a Hollywood blockbuster actress, I don't know what this platform is about. You know, it's a very you strange You saw thing. it all, your, your, many of your followers, not all, but many of your followers started to attack her as well. I mean, yeah. some of those things were brutal. Can you acknowledge? Yes, of course. And some of them were completely disgusting. But I'm not responsible for what other people tw uh, post on the internet. Is Justin Bieber responsible when his fans cut themselves with the hashtag cut for Bieber? Is Beyonce responsible when her fans go off to One Directioners with death threats and rape threats? Of course not. It's preposterous to suggest that a public figure, an entertainment personality, or a prominent journalist is responsible for what other people post on the internet. So he was, his, that he, they took that platform away from him. He was deplatformed. But he still has the ability, like he could go to City Hall and stand in front with a sign. Exactly. He still can, he still has access to mm -hmm. channels, just not ones run, run by a private company. And is that probably great? And it matches most people's values. But what about if Facebook or Twitter decided to do someone more controversial about, you know, someone who wants to advocate for defunding the police or reparations right. somehow? Sure. You know, th then they're deplatformed and that, that we think is a problem. So this is... If you think of the extreme example, right. you're going to, you know, depending on what you think of the, the speech, you might come out on a different idea of what to do. Absolutely. Right. It's very sticky where if so say, say someone was upset about Nicole Hannah-Jones, who was the author of the 1619 Project for the New York Times. So I first came across the year, the date 1619 as a high school student. And I came across it in a book called uh, Before the Mayflower. Mm -hmm. And I just remember it as a student being astounded um, because I had never been taught that enslaved people, that people of African descent had been here even before uh, the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. So I've, I've been obsessed with that period for a long time. And as the anniversary was approaching, I really thought that this was an opportunity to, to finally examine uh, in an institution like the Times the legacy of what it means to be a country that was founded um, in slavery and where, you know, this is the 400th anniversary of, 
of that institution. Right. Like for which you want a Pulitzer Prize, but for which many, many people are still like harassing her and her or just like disputing her thesis. So people think that it's like evil because the thesis of this piece is, you know, slavery basically founded the United States. Right. If it was someone like her, we'd be like, this is an outrage. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very gray area of I agree with you. So it's okay. Right. Yeah. Which is, and what the first yeah. amendment protects against, right? The first amendment equally exactly. protects Milo and equally protects the 1619 project, you know, for, for sure. all the flaws of applying something equally to different people, like, you know, where you stand on Facebook and Twitter and not so much. And have you experienced any pushback after publishing? No, <laughs> the secret of law reviews is not many people read it. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to link to yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I uh, Barack Obama was the the head of his law review, right? Yeah, he was at, at Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> so you're you basically are, and so therefore, but through transitive property, yeah, I mean, you are you yeah. are Barack Obama. Yeah, yeah. That's but cool information. You, yeah, <laughs> you were the editor of the Brooklyn Law Review, right? I was, yes, editor in chief. Um, cool. Yeah, and unlike most publishing situations, it, the students are empowered, mm -hmm. right? You got to decide who got published. Totally. Yeah, which is very unusual, and there's there is criticism from professors that sometimes two Ls can't identify the best scholarship, and they base it off of you know literally a year and a half of going to law school, right? Uh, or they're they're sort of blinded by someone's institution and say, well, if they're you know submitting this from a top ten law school, it has to be perfect. Uh, we have to publish. Absolutely. You mentioned that normally there's a year of editing that goes into a law review. Yeah. So when you had yours, obviously you said it was fast-tracked in three months. What is that process? Is it is it just like peer-reviewed pretty intensely and then edited like normal? It's all done by students. So it's a 2L. There's multiple rounds. And the first round was him saying, hey, I think like you need to build out this argument a little bit more. I'm not fully on board. Or I think you haven't thought of this counter-argument, which is just helpful mm -hmm. always to have a set of fresh eyes to say, well, you kind of missed a spot there. And then, then the For second... Sure round, which is what law reviews are really famous for, is he and his other classmates checked every single footnote to make sure that I actually supported what I was saying, which is time consuming. And I think, you know, I have a very short article and I have 175 footnotes and they went to each source and they highlighted the passage that supported what I was saying. They found mm -hmm. all my typos. Uh, and that, that piece is really what I think law reviews are very strong at because you have to be able to support what you're saying. And if you if you can't, then it's not a valid piece of legal writing. And then the last one was really just typos and me being like, oh, something happened this week in the news that I think I need to write a paragraph about. Can I have an extra day? Right. So just like little, right? Little. Yeah. Regions. Yeah. They're like nits. A smart woman once told me there are no typos. There are no, once you publish, there are no typos. <laughs> it's too late. When, <laughs> Kathleen, uh, what's your favorite so thing of quarantine? It's too late to wake up early. It's too late to wake up early. <laughs> Absolutely it is. Oh, that's like the saying of my life. <laughs> I was just going to add that I bet that that process like in the law review side really it must be as a per, as like a someone participating in a law review it must give you a really robust. I don't know. I feel like the fact checking I feel like that's helpful to the people who are actually part of the law review yeah. also, right? Like I think just so. those like the opposition viewpoints like that kind of stuff. I feel like it's a great education. I think so too. I mean, I truly did drink the Kool-Aid of Law Review and I think it provided me and everybody who was on it a lot of skills. However, it, it can be like 
a little bit of a drag as you're reviewing these like 20 footnotes and you also have a full course load. Yeah. You know, have to do it, but it gives you attention to detail and like the value of supporting your, your work and you get to, you get exposed to a wide range of ideas and writing types. So yeah, shout out to Greg from George Mason. He was awfully nice. (laughs) What up, Greg? Yeah. (laughs) Aside from my knowledge that Barack Obama had been the editor of the law review at Harvard, I didn't really have a strong concept of what that meant. But then I went with Anne to one of her law school friends' parties and everyone treated her like a celebrity. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, no lie, because she, they're all like, she's the editor. She's in power. That's so cool. Position. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because it's, it. I mean, everybody knows what it is in the legal profession, which is helpful. And then That's awesome. I was in charge of 90 students and we published four issues of like eight pieces each. So it was, it was a, long year, but, uh, I learned a lot and yeah, and I was a benevolent dictator. <laughs> but Miranda Priestley. And also you're going to start a clerkship soon. Yeah. At this, to bring it full circle to our pop culture focus, you'll be doing your clerkship <laughs> at the law and order <laughs> court, right? <laughs> yeah. Definitely. What? <laughs> it's next door. It's federal court. So not law and order. But, I know. <laughs> That courthouse, though. Yeah, that's where I'll go to. I'll I can picture it. Today. The Southern District of New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many people got shot on those stairs, like for yes. being on the wrong side of judgment. You know. Yeah. After those, all those press releases, yeah. after the verdict came down, Elliot Stabler was attacked. Yeah. <laughs> We're still speaking in fictional terms, correct? <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh yeah. Um, is my um, so a clerkship is one year you work for a judge. And so the judge mm-hmm. is responsible for, and I'll be at the trial level court, is responsible for deciding motions and, you know, presiding, presiding over trials. And so you as mm-hmm. a law clerk, you review all the, the papers from the parties and you draft research memos and you make suggestions on how, like, what is the right answer for, for the judge to make the ultimate call on um, the trial or sentencing of somebody who's convicted of a crime. And so it's like a, a year long intensive, like research and writing process where you're, you get to like understand what it is to be a judge and think like a judge. And oh. do you want to be a judge? Um, I don't know. I think it, it's nice to, to have clients and say, this is the position I have to take. It's, it's what the client is best for the client. Whereas the judge, you have to decide what is correct. And I think that's sometimes a harder task. Maybe yeah, it's absolutely. work to get to be a judge. You have to have their connection to the senator. Can you say which judge? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Judge Berman. He was the judge. Who judge Berman. Epstein. Um, he was going to be the Jeffrey Epstein judge. Billionaire businessman Jeffrey Epstein was arrested in New York Saturday on federal charges related to sex trafficking. The 66-year-old hedge fund manager has long been accused of sexually abusing underage girls. Oh, my God. He also found in favor of Tom Brady. In Deflategate. <laughs> Funny story. I'm at the Pats game a couple of weeks back with my nephew, who's kind of a pain in the ass. He's eight years old and he's hacking up a lung. He's coughing really bad. He says he got bronchitis. I'm like, you don't have bronchitis and I'm not leaving the game. I paid a lot of money for these seats. So I go and I, I, I take a football. I don't want to squeeze all the air into his little lungs because, you know, I don't want to ruin the football. So I, I just take a little bit of air out of, out of most of them, like 11 out of 12 of them. And, and it does the trick. It, it, it absolutely saves his lungs. <laughs> Hell yeah, that guy rules. Yeah, totally. (laughs) 
Tom Brady didn't do anything wrong. So a lot of times we hear about clerkships, I feel like in in reference like Supreme Court justices, right? Like one of the things that people thought about Kavanaugh, one of of the many problems that I have with Kavanaugh (laughs) was he clerked, I believe, for Antonin Scalia. He clerked for um, Gorsuch. Both clerked for Kennedy. Okay, but oh, that's right. It was uh, like a conspiracy theory that someone whispered in. Right, because then Kennedy that, bounced. Yeah. Right, yeah. Kennedy left. Yeah. And was like, oh, goodbye, everyone. Okay. That's right. So uh, your successor uh, was not confirmed unanimously. Obviously, it was more political, uh, you would say. And do you think the confirmation process has become unduly political since the time that you were confirmed? Well, we're very careful not to comment uh, on the confirmation process. It's. Uh, I'm, but I'm it, trying to sneak in something that you well, don't want well, to normally well, say. So well, what can well, you say? Uh, well, it's it's committed to the book. We we we. In fact, we have a rule, David, um, that the minute uh, someone whom we know, in my case, knew Gorsuch very well, was one of my former clerks, wonderful clerk, um, and this and the same way with uh, with Brett Kavanaugh. The minute the nomination is made, we have what they call in business a Chinese wall, no communication, and, and nor do we call uh, clerks that are helping them or their wives and say, be sure to answer this question or another. Zero communication, because we simply cannot um, have either the reality or the perception that the court is in any way involved in the uh, Nomination and confirmation of, of 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 our own of our own members. This is this is critical. Oh, I remember now. I think it's good. Um, There's then, a lot of sensationalism over like, oh, you clerked for a conservative or a liberal judge, right? Like, there's a lot of sensation uh, over it, but it's it's good to have people who have different views in the room with you, so that mm-hmm. you like iron out or you. There's a clerk who is super liberal, like to the point where he describes himself as a communist who clerked for Antonin Scalia. And he's like, you know, I think I was in the room there to be like, you need to dial back some of this language. Like, fine, your your logic makes sense, but like this language is not not the best language specifically in, in context of gay rights cases. Like you shouldn't be using those terms. Well, and if you think about it, it's like the, the law is the law. The law is freedom free from passion, <laughs> as we know. The law is reason free from passion. No, legally, legally one. Okay. It's reason free. It's not freedom. I don't know what I just said. <laughs> the law is reason free from passion. There, I said it again. I put that one in. Okay. Um, yeah, Holland Taylor's Holland Taylor says that line to her. Mm-hmm. It's like the first line of like her class. Yeah. But. My only other big question. Uh, yes. Every Make time sense. I've had the pleasure of being in the vicinity of Anne, the last two years, really. She's just clicking and clacking at that computer. She works so hard. Her hours are so long. Mm. Have you had time to- She does. In any pop mm. culture. In any pop culture. Quarantine times are interesting. I love living in New York City and going to Broadway shows. Uh, those have been shut down, but I think last summer I saw Moulin Rouge. And so I've been listening to the cast album. Oh. Love hurts. All you have to do is play the game. Love scars. All you have to do is take on. It's just like a lot of fun. It reminds me of a really fun, like very New York-esque night to go went to dinner and then out to Moulin Rouge. To the theater. The theater. I love that. Yeah, Anne hosted a bachelorette party for Sarah and worked for half of it. Oh, <laughs> and yeah. she still managed 
And she still managed to get everything that she needed to done. Yeah. Even though that one woman at that restaurant was so unhelpful and she is cat <laughs> and my nemesis. I guess that's the mark of being a great host or a terrific maid of honor is that I had no idea. You know, I'm like, I was just on cloud nine to be surrounded by. And it wasn't, no, it wasn't. And it definitely wasn't half of it. That was an exaggeration, yeah. but it was an impressive amount. And we were like, Anne, oh my gosh. And she's like, I, I just got to do it, guys. You should have seen the last two weeks on Cape Cod. It was, Bachelorette was like a vacation. <laughs> I would like to add one more thing before we go, because I have been just for our, this is for our viewers. Pen <laughs> um, 15 comes back this week. It's also for Sarah and it's an FYI for Sarah also. 1015 is back this week. New episodes are up. I believe it's like Friday. Yeah, I'm really excited. But I just, because I've been rewatching the first season just so I could like, you know, just as a little refresher. So I wanted everyone to know that because everyone should be watching that show. Can you tell me so. how to get into that show? I watched. Here comes everyone, Kat. <laughs> everyone kept telling me to watch Pen 15. And then I watched two episodes yeah, and I couldn't get into it. It might not be for everyone. Some people just are not into the humor. They're not into the the girls playing themselves. Listen, I don't know. I might not be able to help you because like I accessed no. it immediately, you know? It might it might just be a different wavelength from where you're at. Oh, she can't help me. <laughs> I, I really wanted to like it. I don't know if I can. people that I like like it. And, and I wanted it to be like- a I mean, I would say we. I, I'll, I can watch it episode like with you. We can like- I would, I would watch I don't know if that would help watch though. episode with Molly. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't seen 1015, the beats are uncomfortable because you've got these two women in their 30s playing middle schoolers and the rest of the yes. cast members are actual middle schoolers. And so it's like yes. meant and to they look pretty young. I that it does make it difficult. For me, it was like I was I think it depends on like whether you can immerse yourself into the idea that they are like in seventh grade right like I think like for me it was like I was able to like key into that I was like okay I am convinced but if you can't like see past that I feel like that yeah absolutely Sarah I think that's what makes it really difficult yeah, yeah the crushes when I was thinking you're mm -hmm. a 30 year old woman and that actor is 12 yes. <laughs> but there's a yep oh yeah which allowed me to like suspend my sense of reality because they, because they're playing these really dweeby seventh grade girls. Like she's got no shot with that 12 year old and that's what kind of made it okay. <laughs> you know? Yes. Yeah, I'm I like, sorry girl, it. it ain't happening. <laughs> All right. Well, it has been a pleasure. We are off to All the right. rainforest. We're going to hoe. Wait, show fun, fun gals. Are you showing her? Oh, but I mean, it's so beautiful. So beautiful. Have fun. Oops. Oh my I, gosh. I yeah. have been Sarah. That's the stuff. I have been Molly. Love you. This is Poppet. Love you. This is Poppet. Don't these boats know I'm trying to get good audio? We called the adventure a boop chalet. Molly, it asks really good questions. <sighs> She's smart. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>